This is the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. The total crypto market cap came within a whisker of $2 trillion this week, pushing this new asset class ahead of Saudi Aramco and just slightly behind the world's largest company, Apple, which is valued at $2.1 trillion. To put this in some kind of perspective, in January this year, the total crypto market cap was $760 billion. So the market has more than doubled in the last three months alone. And it's not just Bitcoin that is powering the surge. Smaller so-called altcoins like Ethereum, Cardano, Polkadot and others seem almost unstoppable with price gains of 1,000% or more over the last year. Something seismic is happening in the crypto space. The emergence of decentralized finance is certainly one part of the story. That's where crypto owners are able to lend, borrow and earn interest on their cryptos outside of the banking system. That certainly accounts for the tremendous price gains in altcoins like Ethereum, Cardano and Polkadot. But Bitcoins is a slightly different story. It's seen as a store of value and has suddenly picked up a flurry of corporate backers like Jack Dorsey of Twitter, Elon Musk of Tesla and Michael Saylor of MicroStrategy. Joining us to make sense of all this is economist Davi Ruet who for many years has been a strong proponent of cryptocurrencies as an alternative to fiat currencies like the RAND. Hi, Davi. Good to speak to you again. It's been pretty astonishing, is it not, that the crypto market cap has now grown to $2 trillion. That's putting it just a shade behind Apple in terms of market cap. What do you think is driving this? Thanks for the invite. Uh, very nice talking to you. I don't really know, and I'm trying, I think everybody's trying to figure out, but there, I've got a few ideas. And I think the one answer to why we've seen the sudden surge in in the value of cryptocurrencies. And in your intro, you made a couple of comments. I mean, you referred to cryptocurrencies. And by the way, I prefer to call it private monies, not cryptocurrencies, because the rand is also encrypted. The dollar is also encrypted. So I call it cryptocurrencies. If you want to understand but we're talking about money that is created not by central banks, but by the private sector, then call it what it is. And that's private money, which is used to be pretty much the norm in our history. But why the sudden surge in the interest there and why the sudden increase in the value of this asset loss? And that's another question. Is this an asset loss? I'm not so sure. Is the rent an asset loss? Can you talk about something that can be created out of nothing as an asset loss? And again, I guess that's a bit of a philosophical question. But to come back to your question, I think part of the reason why we see this huge increase in interest and the increase in, in the prices of these private monies is simply because it's becoming generally accepted. It's become generally accepted, people getting used to it, people getting trust in it, and people are getting interested in it. And of course, there's a lot of technological development taking place as well. It's becoming more useful, and you can start using it for all sorts of things and so on. But it's pretty much in line for, with, with the development of things like, for example, the cell phone. Cell phones go back to the 1970s. Nobody had a cell phone, or well, one or two guys had a cell phone, but the cell phone is not very handy. If only you and your friends got a cell phone, you can call one another, but you can't any, call anybody else. And then suddenly, everybody's got cell phones, and by the end of the 1990s, everybody had a cell phone. And I think that's that's also part of the answer, is that technology always, we're all always very excited about technology, but it always takes longer to take hold. But once it takes hold, it happens much quicker than what we thought. And I think that's pretty much, so it's a, a combination of technology that's becoming generally accepted and the trust in these sort of things. People starting to trust private money much more now than in the past. I mean, if you look at the stats, there's a, more than 100 million people now who own cryptos of one kind or another, or at some point in the past have owned cryptos. That's out of a global population of more than 7 billion. So we really are at the early stages of adoption Very here. Much. But it seems that the acceleration is starting to happen. When you look at the 
incredible uh, price gains in cryptos like Bitcoin and Ethereum, and you look at the sort of market cap figures that we've just discussed, it becomes more difficult for asset managers to ignore the space. Would you agree with that? Yes, but there's a catch or two there. Uh, And I mean, the obvious thing, the obvious danger here is that we read every day in the newspapers about people losing their keys, Bitcoin getting stolen or some of these other private currencies getting stolen. So so I think the technology is still a long way off. People need to understand the technology a little bit better. They have to understand there's a lot of risk out there. They have to understand that we're working here with information because this is what this is this is only information and this information this information can be the information about ownership it can be information about a store of value so it can be information about a lot of things and people need to be very careful about that and i and i do think people gradually will become more used to this and understand that you have to be careful with your passwords and that sort of stuff and it will become even more generally accepted and the demand for that will go up yes so i do believe that people in the financial sector must uh, take note of this and then must uh, start putting measures in place to to be part of this new modern economy. In fact, we at the Fission Group, where, where we are, we are putting measures in place to start issuing our own so-called stable coin because we can see the opportunities and the possibilities of this out there. And we can see we're going to make it much easier for our clients uh, and that's cheaper for our clients. Uh, but, but the main thing has to do with trust. You really have to understand who you're doing business with and you have to understand that information is what, what is valued today and that you have to be very careful with the way that you treat your own information. You make sure uh, that you that you look after your passwords and you may have to make sure that you, you don't do silly things and start trusting people with all sorts of things. So those are some of the lessons that we need to learn still or m- most of the, of, the, of the public out there. Yeah, I mean, we've discussed this on MoneyWeb Crypto before. It's like in the early days of computers, you know, when yeah. you had the DOS operating system. You yeah. had to know a little bit about DOS and how to actually you know, type in the right command in order to get the computer to do anything. We're kind of in that phase, probably passing a little bit out of that phase now yes. to make it more user-friendly, but it is still extremely clunky and, and th- th- there's not the adoption rate for, let's say, your parents. They, they would be reluctant to go into something like this, just given that it's technologically challenging. But apart from the technology, it's still very difficult to understand about simple things like for example what is money i would dare to say that there are many economists out there that do not understand what money is because what is money really i know we i mean we all know the definition of money but think about that can you like i've said a few minutes ago is that if a central bank can create something out of nothing can that be considered as an asset class and how is money money created maybe that is one of the reasons why we haven't seen an even greater acceptance of uh, private monies and that is simply because the second round of money creation that process that technology has not been developed yet and let me explain what i mean by that in a modern process of the money modern money creation process how, how things happen is that central banks are monopolies they can literally make money out of nothing in the past we had something like the gold standard for example we don't have that anymore and they've got a little thing called the printing press of course, it's a little bit more complicated. It's uh, digital, all of that today. But still, they create money out of nothing. We call it base money. And they give this money to the economy. They give it to banks. And the banks take this base money and they make it more through the credit process. So they lend out money and people borrow this money and deposit it back at the bank. And through this process, M0 or base money becomes M1 and M2 and the money supply increases. 
Now, we don't have that yet properly established in the private money sector yet. Base money, Bitcoin as an example, that coin, that code that you have in your, on your phone, that is the equivalent of base money or that is the equivalent of a gold coin. That's, I guess, why it's called Bitcoin. But we don't have to, it's not well established yet how we can take that base money and make it more. How can we create an M1 or an M2 based on Bitcoin? Not yet. And once we can start doing that, and I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is that we need financial intermediaries. Today we have banks mostly and other financial institutions, but banks are the most important financial inter intermediaries that actually accommodate this money creation process in the economy. And we don't have that yet. And that's part of the reason why we haven't seen an even bigger surge in the interest and even perhaps the value of these so-called private monies. But I think it's coming. It's only a matter of time. In fact, all of that is there already. We just have to teach people that you can open an account, a Bitcoin account, and you can borrow Bitcoin or any one of these other private monies, and you have to pay interest of X. How will interest be determined? Are there derivatives of this? Remember, what I've just said is very important. If you go and borrow 10 Rand from a bank, for instance, you don't buy 10 Rand. You buy, or you don't borrowing 10 Rand. You're borrowing derivative of a Rand equal to 10 Rand of the Rand, if that makes sense. Mm. So, because what happens in the end, you can eventually take your 10 Rand that you've borrowed from a bank and you can claim it from the central bank and you can actually get a cent. But money today is actually nothing but a derivative of a derivative. In a way, and we haven't got that technology yet properly established in a private money sector or wherever it's created. But once that happens, then then private money will become a real, real rival uh, to centrally controlled money. I mean, you can actually at the moment borrow you against can. your Bitcoin, but of course you're borrowing in usually a stable coin, you know, like a rand or a dollar or exactly. something like that. So you're not creating more Bitcoin that algorithmically you cannot do. You cannot create more Bitcoin than 21 million. Think of it like this. If you can borrow a Bitcoin and you can take this Bitcoin and redeposit it somewhere else and then the bank can lend it out to somebody else and that other person can redeposit it back again, it's exactly the same as normal money creation. We, you may think that you have 100 rand in your savings account at the bank, but you don't have that because if we all run back to the bank, the bank will not have enough money. The same sort of thing, if you can create the same sort of thing in the private sphere where Bitcoin is lent out and redeposited and lent out again, and by doing that, you're creating more Bitcoin. Once we can do that, then it will be a real rival uh, to conventional currencies. We can already do that. The technology is there to do it again, but it's not really taking hold yet. It's not really become, money supply is not really increasing because of this credit process in a Bitcoin sphere or any one of the other private currency sphere. I hope that makes sense in a weird way. Yes, I, I think in the crypto sphere, they, there's this element, a lot of debate around double counting. What you've just described there is, is double counting. You're lending out Bitcoin, it gets redeposited somewhere else. It's the same Bitcoin, but it's been counted twice. Exactly. The same thing with the RAND example exactly. you gave. That's exactly. And that is money creation. That's why I say you get two kinds of money. You get the money created by your central bank, and then your, your financial system takes this and makes it more by double counting or triple counting. Or multiple times. And so you get the fractional reserve. The fractional reserve system. Exactly yeah. that. Yeah. So that has not yet. Now, now, we can argue is that good or bad. 
I would argue it's probably a good thing because well, it's important for the money supply. It's like it's, it breathes like the economy. If there's a lot of economic activity by the end of the month, as an example, you need more money in the system. And you can create more money by lending out more money in a more, the credit system. And at the middle of the month, less money is needed in the economy and the money supply will contract. And that's how it works. Unfortunately, the trend in normal money, in normal central bank money, is that it tends to keep on increasing more than contracting. And that's why all government monies, all, all central bank monies, all, all centralized monies ever in the history of mankind, they've all either disappeared uh, or they're in the process of disappearing. Let me give you an example. The South African rand is this year 60 years old. In 60 years' time, the South African rand has lost nearly 99% of its value. Nearly 99% of its value. In, in the last 60 years? 60 years. Since its creation, 60 mm. years ago, the rand has lost nearly 99% of its value. It's that's being a, that, destroyed. That's, that's a frightening Yes, thought. and the same goes with the U.S. dollar. It's like in the interest rates. Yeah, um, this is, uh, what's it, the fourth power in the world? What did Einstein say, apparently? Compound uh, interest. Yeah, yeah, exactly the same thing. If you keep on losing 5 or 6% or 10% per year on your currency because of inflation, that's what the sort of number that you're going to end up with. Right. Your money loses its value, and that's where we are. Well, Michael Saylor of MicroStrategy, this is exactly the point that he makes. He says, if you look at the U.S. dollar, he's not even looking at the rand. The U.S. dollar has depreciated by 3.4% since the end of the Second World War. It's gone through exactly the same cycle. The RAND came into existence in 1961. That's been depreciating at 8% per year. So he says if you project forward 10 years, 20 years, and you're a CFO in a company, uh, what is the responsible thing to do? You keep on you know, holding your reserves in an asset which is depreciating at that rate, or do you go for something which is going to be deflationary? In other words, it's going to hold its value. What do you make of that? I mean, Michael Saylor is a very interesting guy. He's no fool. He's very smart if you listen to his interviews. He just went out and he borrowed a billion dollars. He issued a zero-coupon mm-hmm. bond. For what purpose? For buying Bitcoin. And he, he's saying, he says, we've got two sources of money. He's, you know, we've got the, the cash that we've built up, which we convert immediately into Bitcoin. And the other thing is our software services. Those are the two sources of income. Is that the responsible thing for a CFO to do? I don't see big take-up in South Africa no. of this at the moment. Do you think it's coming? Yeah, it's not going to happen in South Africa. And the obvious reason is simply because we have interest rates in South Africa. Well, that's a very important contributing reason for that. In the case of the U.S., interest rates are so very, very low in the rest of the world that it doesn't make sense to – well, it makes sense to borrow money in something that cheap – that cost you nothing or very little and take it and buy something that you think is going to give you a better return. And that's part of the reason why we've seen in recent years uh, since beginning the ten, the past 10 years with quantitative easing and more recently things like, for example, yield curve control and very low interest rates is that money, they are intentionally trying to destroy the value of money. I mean, they say so. They say so, the Federal Reserve in the U.S. They've got an inflation target of 2%. They had inflation target of 2%. It was below 2%. Now the target is something above 2% until we reach an average of 2%, but they didn't say for how long. So they intentionally trying to destroy the currency because that's what inflation is. So it makes absolutely sense if you owe money or you owe, you have a liability in something that's becoming less valuable like money, and you have an asset in something that's got the potential of becoming more valuable. So either you go and buy gold, and I don't like gold because it doesn't give you any return, or you buy platinum, or you buy real estate, or if you believe that people are going to accept Bitcoin or one of these other private currencies as money, then you buy that. So yeah, it makes absolute rational sense. And remember the definition for money is anything 
that is generally accepted as money is money. And without a doubt, these private currencies like Bitcoin are getting more accepted generally as money. So it's becoming money. And the more it becomes money and generally accepted as money, obviously the choice is easy. Where you, do you want to buy, do you want to invest in something with, which, which the creator is intentionally destroying in value? Or are you going to buy something else that people tend to trust more? Right. I mean, if you read the original white paper that was written by Satoshi, <laughs> uh, he goes into that, that whole discussion is like the intentional destruction of money and why Bitcoin is a solution to that, because it has a hard cap. It'll never be more than 21 million coins in issue. But just turning for a minute to central bank digital currencies or what are called CBDCs, yeah. there was recently a debate at the Blockchain Africa conference on this, and there were dozens of central banks are looking at this blockchain technology to issue CBDCs. Now, only about 3% of the money in South Africa is in cash. The rest yeah. is in some sort of digital form, right? But the idea is obviously to reduce this and, and, and get rid of this cash at some point. I don't see that happening in Africa at any time soon, but it does raise all sorts of questions. What kind of inflation is going to be built into CBDCs? Because this is a computer algorithm. It's going to have to be built into the software code if you have inflation. And other things like, do you want government tracking your every purchase? You know, you've mm. got this surveillance state phenomena, which in a sense is what blockchain and cryptos are all about. Mm. It's a rebellion in a way against that. It is. Well, I'm not sure you need inflation. Uh, let's try to simplify things. Let's assume we decide to start using gold again as a currency. You don't have to have inflation in gold. Uh, the value of gold will go up and down depending, depending on supply and demand forces, of course. So sometimes it will be inflationary, sometimes deflationary, but there's no intention to deflate our gold money if we want to. The same goes for central bank digital currencies. You don't have to bolt in deflation. I think, uh, like we talk about the monetary policy, is that they can simply create more of these currencies if they wish to do so. The biggest challenge that I have with central bank digital currencies is that it will still be under control of politicians. That is a big challenge. And there's always, politicians will always try to make more of this stuff and very rarely will they try to make less of this stuff because it's easy. It's nice to create more money. It's not nice to destroy money. Another issue that I have is that, remember, if you have a central bank currency, it essentially basically means the moment you buy one of these currencies that you will have a bank account with your central bank. That's what it means. And not with a financial intermediary like a bank. We won't need banks anymore. Now, is that a good or a bad thing? I think there are pros and cons if we don't have banks anymore. And then what you did mention is that you can a, cent, a, a blockchain essentially is that we have full access to all information since the beginning of time. And that can be seen as a huge drawback for central bank currency because it won't be easy to evade taxes, for instance, because they can always go and check you. So those are some of the arguments. But there are some other benefits, depending who you are. If you're a central banker, for instance, you can simply devalue, and I think that's what you're referring to. You can simply devalue the value of your digital currency, forcing people to spend more money. That's pretty much the same as a central bank pushing interest rates below zero. Because we've got the zero bound somewhere. You can push interest rates to, to zero and not much below zero because if you push it less than zero, people will simply take their money and they put it in a vault somewhere and put a guard outside looking over your money. Central banks want to devalue the value of their currencies. That's why they push interest rates below zero, trying to force you to spend this money and not to save it. With digital currency, it will be much easier for central banks. They can simply devalue the value of money and you don't have the option to put it in a vault somewhere because it's not in a physical form 
at all. So that's a major difference. So that is perhaps if you're a central banker and you really want to get people to spend money and not to save money, you can simply tell them, listen, if you don't spend it, I'm going to take some of it away and they will be forced to spend this money. Pretty much the same sort of thing that central banks are trying to do today by trying to cut interest rates below zero. So, yeah, I don't think it's going to be very successful, central bank currencies. I think there will be some uptake for that because people think that the central bank is the government. There will be some sort of protection somewhere. And I guess there is, in a way, some sort of protection. And you can create artificial demand for this. You can simply force people to pay taxes using this new created currency. And by doing that, you can force people to take up to some of this currency. But for the other reasons, I think the, the privately managed currencies are likely to outperform central bank currencies for the obvious reasons that we've seen for the forever and a day when politicians keep on destroying money. So I think they will do that as well. Right. I mean, that's one of the things, the questions I'm going to raise with you is how Bitcoin seems to be almost immune to regulatory interference. Whenever a government, like as has happened in China and yeah. India and Pakistan, Taiwan, where, and Nigeria as well, where they cut the relationship between the crypto exchanges and the banks. And w- what has happened there is you now get Bitcoin. You can buy Bitcoin in Nigeria, but you're paying a 50% premium for it. When it happened in China a few years ago, there was a 50% drop in the price of Bitcoin, yeah. but it didn't last long. It was a few weeks, yeah. it was back up to where it was, and then it just went to a new all-time high. So every time a government tries to do something, it's trying to stop a dam with your hands. You know, <laughs> this thing is just water going around your fingers, you but, know. But understand how they're doing this. See how governments are doing this. They ban it. They say, listen, you're not allowed to have it, but they can't stop you because it is information. And we have to understand, and it can change. Information can change. Like, for, let me give you an example of an information that can change. Say, for instance, I've got a call option on you. This is information. I've got a call option. I can buy your car for a certain uh, amount of money in 10 days' time, for instance. This is information saying I have the right to force you to sell your car to me at X price. But in 10 days' time, I can take this information, I can convert it to something else, and the new information is I become the owner of your car. So information changed. And information can be sent. uh, It's like pornography. You can send it anywhere in the world. It's simply information. Uh, and that's why the blockchain is so amazing, because the blockchain makes sure or you know, ensures that this inflation information is actually true. And you can't stop that. It's, it's, uh, governments can't, can't really stop that. It's like trying to stop information. It's, information comes and goes. It, it get, always gets out or comes in. But the only way that they can stop it, they can go to a company and say, listen, I know you guys are trading in, in bitcoins or in Private monies, I don't want you to do that, but I know you've got a bank account at a bank which is under control of their central bank. And you simply tell that bank, don't do business with this business. Right. And you simply cut off. It's like what they did to the Guptas in South Africa. Mm. They closed the bank accounts. And what they're doing with the second Yahoo now at the moment, mm. they're closing the bank accounts. And, and you, you're simply starving that business of the, the blood of keeping that business alive, and that is money. But that can only last until we don't need rands anymore. And then you don't need to go to these sort of banks do anymore. You see, do you see an end to the rand at some point? Of course. And, and the dollar? Of course. It, it always comes to an end. There is no single currency in the history of mankind that is still there. Nothing. Not one. They've all dis- been destroyed. I already gave you the numbers on the rand and on the dollar. They will all disappear one day, and it will be replaced by something else. It could be replaced in the interim with something like, for example, special drawing rights. There's a new currency on the block. It's called the Remimbi. That currency is only, that's also only about 60 years old. It's also a relatively new one. The South African currency, before that, it was a South African pound. 
they come and go all the time, <laughs> depending on who you've got in charge and depending whether people trust us or not. No, I think it's inevitable. The currency Durand will disappear and all these human man-made currencies will disappear. And that makes the blockchain so very special because you've got a lot of people with interest in this in this network because it's nothing but a club or a network and you're not going to get everybody to agree that we have to destroy what is us. Well, central banks, they've got a, they've got control over, or politicians got control over central banks. Don't come with this BS that central banks are independent. They are under control of politicians everywhere in the world. I know they want to create the impression they're independent. They're not. Maybe on a day nominally independent, they can increase and reduce interest rates a little bit. But just see what happened to the guy that was a central banker in Turkey. It got chopped off, and even the deputy president or governor at the central bank got fired as well. It happens all the time. Central banks will get fired. Even when Donald Trump was jumping up and down, Powell was getting quite anxious about politicians. Central banks are under control of politicians, whether we like it or not. And uh, and, I, and that means inevitably that politicians, as always, uh, will once they lay their hands on that, they will understand there's a lot of money to be made out of money. And the moment they start doing that, your money and your currency will become worthless. The rent will disappear. It also raises a question about national sovereignty because the currency is seen as one. part of, of your national sovereignty. Yeah. It's what makes you a country. It's the glue that kind of exactly. binds you together in a commercial sense. So if you now have a RAND which is yeah, under threat or is you know got a very short life left, and we're not quite sure what's going to replace it, you know maybe it'll be one of these private monies that we're talking about, Bitcoin yeah. or Ethereum or Cardano. What does that say about the nation state? It's a very interesting. That's debate. A, philosoph- a very interesting philosophical thing. I think in the case, and it's very very relevant for South Africa because South Africa was created in 1910, about 110 years ago. The Union of South Africa came into being, it was created by the British. They decided to, to put four, four countries together and call it the Union of South Africa. They, then the Rhodesians had the option to join the Union of South Africa. They said no. And since then, we've created a very mighty state in South Africa. And I can give you all these numbers, but you know this, is that the whole thing is basically kept together by a small number of taxpayers. Politically, the whole thing is kept together by a small number of taxpayers. And there's a, an agreement between the taxpayers. We will keep on overpaying you. We will moan and groan a little bit. But as long as I can make some money and have my rum and coke and my fillets, I'm happy. On the other side, you've got a huge number of people in the case of South Africa, more than 21 million of them receiving an income from the state every month. Okay, you give us some money. We're not happy. We want more money, of course, but we'll be more or less happy with it is as it is. But I can tell you that part is coming to an end as well because we've reached a point where the fiscal accounts has become, have become completely and totally unsustainable. A fiscal debt trap, that's where we're in today. And it's not only the money part of that, it's the tax part and the state spending part of that as well. And there's a very good chance that South Africa can actually unravel politically. I mean, you know about the guys in the Western Cape. They want to, what do you call it? Secede. Sese- yeah, but they, what, there's the name for it, something exit. Mm. And they want to do their own thing. Is it called Wexit? Wexit, Western Cape <laughs> exit. Yeah, they want to do that. And uh, not too long, even, uh, even the king of the Zulu some time ago said that uh, you may consider taking KZN out of South Africa. So that's a quite a good possibility. It happens all the time. Look at uh, Somalia. There are five, five countries in Somalia. It's Puntland and Somaliland and what else? What about Sudan? Two, three years ago, we had Sudan, Africa, two countries. It happens all the time. Nothing unusual about it. A lot of people in Texas are talking about secession. It's it's happening worldwide. So this is something to layer on top of this whole debate is, you know, Mm -hmm. what happens to governance? You know, we've taken – in our lifetimes, we've sort of expected this is the way things will continue. But – 
things are shifting and they're shifting at a rapid pace. It's not a bad thing. And uh, talking about sovereignty, you know, that's the reason why we all talk about Krugerrands. And Paul Kruger and then Zuid-Afrikaanse Republic or the Transvaal, he wanted, I mean, he really went out of his way to create a Zuid-Afrikaanse Republic pound, the Kruger pound, because that's a sign of a real country. That's a sign of sovereignty. And that's still here today in a way. We still invest in Kruger rands. But I think the point here is, is that the world is changing. Uh, it's uh, it's, it's going to be painful. It's going to be disruptive, hugely disruptive. But there will be new things. It will, it's very exciting. The new way of doing business, a new d- way of living, a new way of working from home, a new way of education, amazing things happening in, in all kinds of technology, in biology, in genetic engineering, all of that. That's part of, of what we are. I guess it's a good thing. And don't be scared. Make sure that you know what's going on and make sure you participate in this amazing, wonderful new world with all these wonderful technologies and embrace these new things. Take a chance. Buy some Bitcoin. Be very careful with your passwords and don't necessarily see that as an investment. I'm not too sure it is. Right. This is exactly Michael Saylor's point. You know, he's saying it is a form of money. You know, it's pointless. He says, you know, converting that back into dollars all the time. He's going to buy Bitcoin, whether it's $100,000 or $200,000. He's not paying attention to that price. But what he's doing is he's, when the cash comes in, he's converting it into yeah. Bitcoin because it is the platform for a new money system. And he's betting big on that. He's simply betting on the technology. And the technology is a decentralized kind of technology that is not under control of one institution like a central bank. It's decentralized, which means if you're part of the Bitcoin community, if you buy Bitcoin or any one of these other ones, you're part of this thing called the blockchain. And it becomes much more difficult for politicians to, to undermine the stability of the blockchain. And that's what he's buying into. Not necessarily the, the Bitcoin as such. He's buying into the technology, which is becoming more generally accepted because it's information. And, well, money is information. You mentioned earlier on about a stable coin at the, the Efficient Group, yes. which is your group. It's Tell not it. supposed to be announced yet, but I can talk about it. Oh, but you, you blew it. I mean, I you did, already yeah. answered it. So what is that? Is okay, it backed by the RAND or what? No, no, no it's quite simple. We have, we've listed something on the JSE. It's called a note. It happens all the time. So it's a normal, nothing special about it. It's just a financial instrument listed on a JSE. It's called a note. And a note is basically a basket of, of a number of shares. So you put a number of shares together and you put it on a JSE listed. And what the plan is, is to issue a coin against this underlying note. You give me 100 rand, I give you a coin on a blockchain, and I take your 100 rand and I buy the underlying asset on the JSE. And now you can sell and buy your coin uh, on the blockchain as whatever way you want to, the transaction cost will be significantly lower than buying the actual note on the JSE, for instance. And one day when you come back to me and say, listen, here's the coin back, I'll take your coin and sell the underlying asset on the JSE and I'll give you whatever it's worth. So that's a form of a stable coin. Right. So the, the coin, you'll have value of the, the portfolio itself, yeah. which will be one value. And then you've got the coin. So there, there'll presumably be a premium and a discount. and it's you'll suppo- Theoretically, supposed to be the same. Theoretically, should the it should no. be exactly the same. But I guess it's possible for a bit of a premium because, like I've said, the, the transaction cost should be a little bit lower. So if you want to speculate in the note, for instance, then uh, then you would rather want a coin and not an, a note itself because if you want to buy and sell it, it's more expensive if you do the note and now you can do it cheaper. And that's a potential big threat to institutions like, for example, stock exchanges because they can potentially now become warehouses. Why buy and sell that or Richmond or whatever, 
uh, on a stock exchange like this, if I can simply do a derivative thereof, and a derivative can be a coin of some sorts. Uh, well, of course, there are risks involved in there as well. And you can cash it out in 10 minutes or three minutes, and oh, you've whatever. got cash, and then you can buy it again in, in whatever. 10 but seconds. very importantly, and we all will do this, of course, voluntary, and that you have to report your capital gains to SARS. That's right. And we will do that because we believe uh, in the efficiency of SARS, yeah, because they won't be able to to get this all this information necessarily. Okay, so they're leaving that up to you. Are you going to take that on your shoulders? Yeah. All right. What do you see as some of the big trends to look out for in cryptos over the next couple of years? The derivatives of cryptos, without a doubt. Uh, well, technology making it derivatives possible. Let me just go back a little bit and see if I can explain what I mean by that. Uh, we initially had gold as currency, and then from gold we started issuing notes, but it was always backed by gold. So it was not the note itself wasn't money. It is what it represents, namely gold. Eventually, in 1971, we stepped off the gold standard. We, we had a semi-gold standard up to 71, but that's a bit technical. doesn't matter. The point is, notes initially were not money. They were derivatives of money, namely gold. Now, today, we only have notes. So, notes today are derivatives of trust, in a way. And the same with Bitcoin. Bitcoin doesn't exist. It can be created out of this mining process. And then you create a Bitcoin. And what we need, we need derivatives of Bitcoin in order to make the money to what we've talked about, to increase and reduce the money supply. And I think that's the next breakthrough that we should be looking forward to. Some technology, it's there, like we've discussed, it's there already. But that's where you have to keep an eye on. And there are many opportunities there. So if you want to get involved in this, in this new financial industry, become a bank in a way where you can take deposits and lend money out and so on and participate in that, in the derivatives of, 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 of course, I think the private money itself, the actual thing, the gold will still be important, but the notes, the derivatives of gold will be more important. I, I think that's an important point. You know, you talk about decentralized finance, which is basically you going onto a Uniswap or an Oasis or something like that, and you're able to borrow from a guy that you never know. They don't even want to know your name, not even your email address. And you can borrow millions of rands. Now, this is quite an astonishing development that, that has happened. The point is, there has been a lot of discussion about maybe this whole thing starts getting a little bit more centralized. Like you see Binance, for example, which is yeah. the world's largest crypto exchange, now starting to lend. Uh, you can borrow from them. You can stake, you know, in other words, interest on, on your cryptos and, and that sort of thing. Becoming like a, a trusted source for this sort of thing. That is a very important point you're making there. And I think there are some signs of that in South Africa already. There are some business organizations. And you can invite the guy running this one day, maybe. What they do, they work on this, basically this. Because if you join this business organization, you get introduced by somebody else. And they do business with you. They will, they will give you credit for things because they know that you can be trusted and all that. So and I think what is gradually happening in technology, again, will make it much easier. You, you, you join a club, some virtual club somewhere or digital club. And I believe in the flat earth society and I ascribe to their, to whatever their, their mottos or whatever are. And I buy flat earth society coins and I get a number and we trade with one another. And whenever I trade with you and we're all members of the flat earth society or take a lot for that matter. And I give you, I say, listen, I've bought something with, from you. I'm not very happy. I'm going to give you a four star or a two star or whatever the case. And you build up a reputation over time. And that in itself 
becomes. But that's in a way centralization, but that's a voluntary centralization of certain information. It's good for you to have a good credit record because now people will extend credit to you over, over time eventually and they will accept that they, that you will send the products that you've bought online or whatever the case might be. And I think that is gradually where the world is moving to. And that's perhaps a new form of country. It's a digital country somewhere in the sky. And the only parts that will remain of countries, the way we know that, it's, it is a geographic area. Not even with the currency. Well, we don't have police anymore. We don't have an army in South Africa anymore. So go and live somewhere in a secure state somewhere. Look after your own security and join some digital community somewhere in the sky. I mean, exactly. A lot of South Africans, as you know, moved to Mauritius. Yeah. Why? Because they got low tax exactly. rates there. You know, the Wi-Fi and the cables are pretty good there. So they can run their businesses in South Africa or around the world from there. People are moving to other parts of the world before the COVID lockdown. And now that you're starting to hear about people getting paid in Bitcoin. So this, this kind of remote working thing has really but grown legs. Look at GDPs, economies. Uh, and eco- economists are going to fight forever and a day on what should be included in this thing that we call the economy. But economies... Um, I don't have the exact numbers on me, but I guess 100 years ago, 60% of South Africa's GDP was probably agriculture. And probably 80% was agriculture and, and mining, or maybe even more. I don't have the numbers. The point is that you could actually touch the maize that was produced and the gold that was mined in South Africa. Today, uh, mining, uh, uh, mining is 8% or 6%, 7%, and agriculture is 2 3%. And the biggest chunk of whatever is produced in South Africa are services. Mainly financial services. Yeah, and, but that can be digitized. Mm. So, so why? Why do I have to stay in a place? Why? We're moving into this digital world, this, this total new realm. Where, and why not accept that and see this as a new wave? But, of course, there are many challenges with, with that as well. And unfortunately, in the case of South Africa, our, you need people with skills. You need proper infrastructure. And we don't have that, really. So many people are going to fall behind. I think we're going to leave it there, Davi. You nearly opened the door to a whole new conversation there. <laughs> but I think let's, let's, let's stop there. And that was great to have you uh, in the studio again. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much for the Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.